every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, and this is Peter Lewis, and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday, the 19th of July. And thank you for making Money Talk one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and also now in Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's top economic state planner, the National Development and Reform Commission, vowed Tuesday to restore and expand consumption in a plan to bolster growth that includes boosting household income, improving the business environment for private firms and stabilising youth employment. Shortly afterwards, the Commerce Ministry followed up with the announcement of an 11-point plan to boost the domestic consumption of household consumer goods and services. Local authorities are encouraged to help residents refurbish their homes and people should get better access to credit to buy household products, according to the plan which was released jointly by 13 government departments. US climate envoy John Kerry said the global warming crisis can't be solved without both nations working together as he continued his three-day visit to China. Chinese climate envoy Xi Shenhua cast the talks as a chance to p- pursue substantial outcomes. However, in a meeting on Tuesday, China's top diplomat Wang Yi told Mr Kerry that China-US cooperation on climate change can't be separated from the overall environment of China-US relations. Indian billionaire Gautam Adani predicts that India will be the world's second largest economy by 2050, with income accelerating by over 700% to about $16,000 a head. Speaking at the annual shareholders meeting of his conglomerate Adani Enterprises, he said, I anticipate that within the next decade, India will start adding one trillion US dollars to its GDP every 18 months. Hong Kong's seasonally adjusted unemployment rates fell to 2.9% in the three months ending June from 3% in the previous March to May reading. That's the lowest since September 2019. The underemployment rate also dropped slightly to 1.1%. On today's programme, I'm joined by Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet, with a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks surged Tuesday, boosted by a robust set of earnings from the big banks. The S&P 500 added 0.7% to close at 4,555. The Dow rose 367 points, or 1.1%, ending the session at 34,952. That's a new 52-week closing high. It was the seventh straight positive day for the Dow, the longest winning streak since 2021. The Nasdaq Composite settled 0.8% higher at 14,354. All three major averages had their highest closes since April 2022. Texas-based broker Charles Schwab surged 12.6% after it reported quarterly results that beat Wall Street estimates and said the pace of deposit outflows has continued to slow. Bank of America, the second largest US bank, gained 4.4% after reporting a 19% earnings rise. Morgan Stanley added 6.5% after executives said client activity strengthened during the quarter. Shares of Microsoft rose 4% to a fresh all-time closing high after the company announced plans to charge businesses $30 a month per person for access to an 
uh, to an AI-powered assistant for Microsoft 365, its popular workplace software that includes Word and Excel. It also announced that it will make Meta's AI model, dubbed Llama 2, available to developers building software on Microsoft's Azure cloud computing platform. Hong Kong stocks tumbled Tuesday after markets resumed trading following a day-long halt triggered by Typhoon Talim. The Hang Seng Index ended the day 398 points or 2.1% lower at 19,016. The tech index dropped 2.4%. Real estate and technology stocks led losses on the Hang Seng Index. Real estate developer Long Four Group was the biggest loser, its shares sliding almost 10%. Or Country Garden saw an 8% fall. Tencent dropped 4.6% and Alibaba fell 3.5%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was 0.4% lower at 3,198. And home improvement stocks were among the biggest gainers following the release of China's 11 points consumption plan. The pain for Hong Kong stocks looks set to continue this morning, with the Hang Seng Index forecast to open another 60 points lower. That's a third of a percent. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. On this Wednesday morning, we have with us Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning, Nitin. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Sunil Kashap, who is Director of FinMet. Good morning to you, Sunil. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's start going through this 11-point blueprint that uh, the state planners come out with to boost demand. The National, Deform and, um, National Development and Reform Commission vowed Tuesday to restore and expand consumption in a plan to bolster growth. That includes boosting household income, improving the business environment for private firms and stabilising youth employment. Jin Zhangdong, who is an official with the NDRC, said Tuesday, consumer purchasing power and expectations are relatively weak, while consumption, infrastructure and environment need to be improved. He said we will promptly formulate and introduce policies to restore and expand consumption and issue policies to stabilise large-scale consumption, promote the consumption of automobile and electronic products, expand rural consumption and optimise the consumption environments. The state plan also vowed to address youth unemployment in China, which came in at a record 21.3% uh, in June. The NDRC said it's going to increase service and policy guarantees, step up support for job stabilisation and expansion, although it didn't provide any further details. And then shortly after that, the Commerce Ministry followed up with the announcement of an 11-point plan to boost the domestic consumption of household consumer goods and services. And local authorities are encouraged to help residents refurbish their homes and people should get better access to credit to buy household products. And the Ministry of Commerce said on its website, the 11-point package is aiming at unleashing the potential of household consumption. So there we are, Nitin and uh, Sunil. There we have it. We've been waiting for a fiscal stimulus plan of some sort. This seems to be a key part of it. What's your initial reaction to this? I think it's a little bit paradoxical because on the one hand, you've got the... Chinese guys looking at common prosperity. So you look at the finance industry, they're lowering wages, they're making sure people don't earn so much, but at the same time, they want consumption to be increased. It doesn't go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's a zero sum game where if I take away $10,000 of earning from one person, someone else is going to get that $10,000. It doesn't work that way. So I don't think they've actually quite got this right yet because the reality is people will spend when they feel that they've got surplus income. 
Mm. And if you're taking away income uh, from people, they've not got that surplus, and therefore that consumption side, I think, remains weak for a long time. Um, maybe I've got a little bit of more positive spin. I think um, you've got to look at the context. You know, a year ago, for example, even nine months ago, uh, the Chinese government was more focused on COVID and and other non-economic issues. Um, I think uh, what we're seeing now is an increasing realization amongst the the party and the and the leaders that the economy really matters. There are problems and it needs to be addressed. And so, besides just you know telling the SOEs to do more, I think they realize that they need to increase personal consumption and even help the private sector. So this is just one additional step along the way. Um, you know, is it enough? Of course not. Uh, but I think it's a signal that they are going to do more and more or anything. I wouldn't say anything, but as much as they can to try and turn this economy around. What is it in the plan that makes people more likely to go out and, and redecorate their home or buy some new home appliances? Because I, I don't see anything in the proposals that either specifically encourages you to do that or puts more money in your pocket to enable you to go out and spend. Sunil's a positive one. So <laughs> so I, I think you know, it's about credit, right? So they're saying more, there should be more credit growth, especially mm. for personal credit. So it's, it's just a signal. I, I mean, you're going to see more steps in, in the coming weeks. Uh, and it's all to do with trying to in, improve the, the sentiment. The sentiment up to now has been very pessimistic in the last couple of months. Um, you know, the topic of uh, youth in, uh, unemployment has been um, front and center in a lot of the media. And I think the government is trying to now turn the narrative around. You know, is this by itself going to be enough? Of course not. Mm, I mean, that's that's the issue, isn't it? Because um, it's not a lack of credit. There's been record amounts of credit pumped into the, the economy. It's more a confidence issue. Consumers are worried about the value of their homes going down, about their job security, about getting sick. So spending isn't their priority. How, how does this improve that, uh, that, that confidence? Well, I think there's a credit problem in China as well. So I'm not necessarily think that's actually a good thing to increase credit even further. Mm. So, I mean, as I said, the measures... I agree with Sunil in the sense you're trying to send a message to the market that you're trying to help. But the best way to actually help is to alleviate some of the measures that you've taken over the last few years, which is allow people to earn money again, allow people to feel confident, allow people to get, have surplus income, because that filters through the economy. I mean, just turning around and going, bankers earn too much, let's lower their wages, or people can't you know, do ride-hailing services anymore, or, or you can't pay charge for cheatering all of these things which are income for people mm. uh, which is now being taken away that that's what's stopping your consumption or that's what's hurting you allow people to earn money again allow people to charge for cheatering allow you know all of that to happen and see what happens because it all it's all a filtering effect it's not as i said it's not a zero-sum game where if i stop people paying for cheatering they're gonna some other guy's gonna earn that money it doesn't happen that way it's just that is a necessity for my kids to be cheated no one's going to do it if they're not going to earn any money. So now I can't have my child, you know, better his education. There's also the fact in terms of, like I said, of bankers. They'll, they'll go out, they'll spend at top restaurants. At restaurants will employ people, probably from the lower end of the sector. Those guys start earning money. It's, it's a whole ripple effect, and I don't think they've quite got that right in terms of understanding how you have this ripple effect when it comes to consumption. And um, adding a bit of credit where you're already pretty much over-debted I don't necessarily mm. think is a great thing. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for sure, I think um, this this couple of things are getting in context. You know, there were 
a lot of infrastructure and a lot of um, uh, in you know issues regarding uh, corruption uh, regarding the way that the economy had grown over the last 20 years which the government clearly felt that they needed to address now you know addressing it in a drastic way without leaving an alternative or without having a transition i think is is a problem and um, i think uh, that's something the the government is learning also mm-hmm. uh, and that's where i think they need to do some more work is that they can't be drastic about statements uh, unfortunately the uh, the 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 so governance system we have in china creates that situation where you, it's black and white uh, and you don't leave room for transitions uh, i think that's where the, the real change needs to come about mm. i mean there's a lot of ideology involved isn't there that's why you've seen it's not just an economic issue it's why you've seen for example online education tutoring closed down which was another reason why we've got record youth unemployment now because that would Im- Im- employ um, a lot of those graduates. So it seems that the ideology is getting in the way of the economics here. Yeah, very much so. And if you think about the youth and you look at the gig economy, whether it's, like you said, tutoring, whether it's you know, even being a DD driver, just to add a little bit of income on the side, all of those have been taken away. Um, so yeah, it's no surprise to see high youth unemployment. Um, they're not necessarily, and again, like I said, going into traditional sectors, it's not as attractive as it was because they're being clamped down as well. So I think from you know youth perspective it it's a tough ask at the moment when you've got 21.3% unemployment at youth level that's huge and that in itself becomes a massive social problem that they do need to address and need to address very quickly these wounds are really self-inflicted aren't they i mean the government yes. policies largely to blame for this um, this slowdown because for for decades china's relied on this investment driven growth model um, and now when it needs a consumer-based um, sort of economy, it, it's sort of lagging behind, isn't it? So it's, it's not going to be easy for it to, to turn this around. It's not easy. But, you know, there are certain imbalances that were created over the years. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a view that, uh, you know, the market is self-correcting and things will correct themselves. And it wasn't happening. You know, the, mm-hmm. the imbalances were increasing. So the government really needed to do something. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is a little bit of fine-tuning. You know, we've seen with the tech sector, for example, they've rolled back some of the um, some of the measures that they had done to restrict the growth of the tech sector. Uh, so they are making sort of self-correction steps now, and it's just a matter of time where I think um, you will see more of these changes come about, especially some of the private enterprise issues um, and some of the small SME um, sector needs uh, more uh, changes, I think. It seems to me there's two big issues that the government's got to deal with. I'm wondering if you think they are being focused on. The first one is the economy is on the verge of slipping into deflation, isn't it? Consumer price inflation is zero. Producer price uh, inflation is sliding rapidly. It's uh, already negative. Um, and if they don't, if the government doesn't do something about this, What's the risk that it just gets into a self-reinforcing spiral where people don't want to spend because they think things are going to be cheaper anyway um, in, a, in a few months' time, which worsens the deflation and, and worsens the slowdown? Do you see anything in what the government has said uh, that addresses that issue? You know, the sad thing is you'd look at Japan in the 80s, the wonder story that it was from the 70s and 80s, and then you had the massive years of, or the long years of deflation, um, you've also got a demographic issue, which Japan's also having to face. Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities there. And I, if if they haven't learned from what happened in Japan, I think, you know, as I said, 
it can be quite tricky. The good thing is, obviously, they do set policies and they, they can flip. Um, so I think if things start really getting totally... I mean, I think we're not too far off where it's getting really drastic, but if it gets to a point where there is proper social unrest, I think they're going to have no choice but to try and address these in a more drastic way and mm-hmm. start allowing, as I said, you know, a lot more of the private sector to come back into play, um, free, freedom of choice of wages and all that kind of stuff. And um, But at the moment, I know... I understand the ide- ideology. I understand what they're trying to get to, but... To me, there's two solutions. You either then decide we're just going to have universal wages and the state decides everyone's got the same wage, which is very, very difficult to implement, but you've got to just figure out how you're going to do that. Or you just go back to allowing this to be somewhat of a I mean, free economy is, I guess, the best way of putting it, but allow private sector to flourish again. I mean, I can't really see a way out of it outside of those two. No, you're right. And, and, it's, and there's, there's a big ratio also happening, which is the world is slowing down. Right. Yeah. Uh, everybody, the, the 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 central banks around the world are trying to uh, raise interest rates and slow the economies down. So you have a sc- context here where China is trying to expand at a time when everybody else is trying to uh, control interest rates, control growth. Um, so it's going to be difficult. Does that mean it's going to export its deflation um, around the world? I, you know, there was a statement made a couple of days ago, I think, by Yellen, uh, saying that uh, the the impact of the slowdown in China is going to be felt across uh, across the world, and, and and the deflation, I think, is is something that the Fed will keep in mind. Uh, the deflation coming in from China is going to be a factor that uh, the Fed is going to keep in mind over the next few months. Mm. And, and the other problem, of course, is the property markets. Uh, it started to decline once again. It looked like it was stabilising at the beginning of the year, but now prices and sales are, are sliding once again. The problem there, isn't it, is that the funding model for property developers is, is broken now completely. And they haven't come up with a new way of um, of dealing with this. How, how are property developers going to fund themselves? You know, not many of them are in a position to do that. What, what what's the impact here? What what's the solution going to be here? I think it's also driven by confidence. So what's happening is they they created some backstops. They are, you know asked the uh, state-owned uh, banks to support the real estate sector, provide loans, etc. But the problem is the confidence of the buyers is affected. And so you, you don't have the uptake in terms of people buying properties, buying, buying apartments. And that's affecting uh, revenues and cash flows for the companies. Mm-hmm. And, and what are they going to do about youth unemployment? 21.3%. They said it's a priority, but I didn't see any specific concrete plans about how that was going to be brought down. I think your guess is as good as ours. I mean, like you said, they... they noted it but until you see some concrete policies um i I can get i mean it's going to be a wild guess in terms of what they're actually going to do for me like i said you know the youth are focused on tech gig economy there is also a bit of an older i mean i wouldn't say they're all going down that they're all going to go down that route but there's obviously a high level of that then there is the old economy but like for me it's about other jobs there so you have to create the jobs you, you know, you're not, no one's going to hire anyone unless they've got jobs vacancy. So, first of all, you've got to create the jobs in order for these uh, for the youth to go into. Secondly, you've got to give them something that they're actually passionate about, that they want to go into. Because, and this is a global phenomenon, not just in China, where a lot of the youth today are deciding what they want to do. And if they don't get what they want, don't uh, if they're not getting what they want, they're not going to work. And they're quite happy to sit out now and wait till they get something that they want. 
it's not like the you know the old days where you get the job because you've got to pay you've got to pay bills um today it seems very much that you've got a youth that is very much in control of what they want to do they want that work-life balance they want to do a job that they enjoy so you have to create all of that and create an environment for it and you know let's see where the policies go but at the moment, like I said, your guess is as good as ours in, in terms of... And I think that's what Nitin is saying. Basically, there, there has to be a private sector, uh, public-private kind of solution to this. It can't be done all just by the public sector. It needs private companies to, to really sort of boost investment, doesn't it? Because Correct. they're not spending at the moment. They're not investing. Right. Exactly. So is China going to reach its 5% growth target this year? Well, it depends on stimulus, right? Remember, the China the Chinese government still has a lot of control over the SOEs, and so it can pump uh, money into the SOEs and, and, and do infrastructure growth. I think they're trying to resist that right now, but we'll see what happens after the third quarter, whether they actually try to uh, boost uh, the numbers by, by spending more. They'll figure out a way to hit the 5%, won't they? Because they've, they've, they've said they're going to do it. They will publish that figure. Now, how mm. they do it, yeah, it, Let's see how they get there. It seems a lot of the investment banks are now revising down their targets for, for this year, and 5% now, which was sort of previously a floor for growth, has become their ceiling now. Yeah. Great. How, how much is um, the geopolitics also um, an, an impact here? We had Janet Yellen say um, over the weekend, she's in India for the, the G20 Finance Minister's Summit, that it's going to be premature to relax uh, trade restrictions. The U.S. is doing this four-year review of the trade tariffs that were imposed on Chinese exports by President Trump. But it looks like um, they're going to stay. She was saying it's really too early uh, to, to, to lift them, um, and that wasn't going to be part of the, the thawing, if you like, of US-China relations. How much is all of this geopolitics and talk about now investment controls as well from the US on certain sectors in, in China um, impacting the economy? I think it's having some effect, but then there's also a cost effect. And I think what you've seen, it, and it's pre-COVID, you were seeing this already. COVID obviously slowed it down for a bit, and now... In the last year, you're seeing it again. Is that there's been a shift away, from, certainly on the lower end of the manufacturing, away from China. Mm. So that had already happened, and that was just a cost effect, you know, where the garments were going to Vietnam, Bangladesh, you know. We was, we, and last year, we've seen some ships going into India, even the US. Um, so there was a bit of a supply chain thing where we want some stuff closer to home there was a bit of cost effect in terms of vietnam bangladesh india offering better cost value all of that had happened to say over the last say seven eight years so yes the tariffs have played some part in it but wages is a big part of that as well and you know indian wages are probably half of what they are in china you know vietnam's probably you know slightly higher bangladesh is similar as well so you've got all of these effects coming into play so i don't necessarily think with or without the tariff, I think that was always going to happen. And China was kind of somewhat being prepared for it because they wanted to move into the high end of, of this manufacturing side on the chips and all that. I think, so I think what's more been, had more of an effect is, a, is the tech war. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that you've got American chip companies can't buy from China and all this kind of stuff and having to f- do all this paperwork, investors, you know, of US investors can't even invest into Chinese chips, all that. So I think, to me, that's had more of an effect in terms of the China game plan than necessarily just saying, okay, um, there's tariffs on, say, clothes and all that kind of stuff, because that was already moving away from China before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think it's changing. I don't think, you know, that the, the you know, what Yellen is talking about really is, is saying that 
there's not going to be too much of a thawing of relations because remember US is getting into an election cycle now and you know China is a favorite uh, uh, sort of a beating stock in terms of um, uh, the politicians so both both sides of the aisle are sort of have an anti-China stance and that's what sells for elections so I think I don't think there's going to be any meaningful uh, change in, in the US stance towards China I mean we've got quite a lot of US engagements at the moment out here in the region John Kerry's in Beijing for the climate change talks Janet Yellen is in India but it doesn't look like either meetings have really moved very far forward we had at the uh, the climate change uh, meeting Wang Yi saying that you know cooperation on climate change can't be separated from the overall environment of US-China relations, which doesn't sound very optimistic. And then at the G20 finance ministers' meetings, they seem completely deadlocked on trying to come up with some sort of statement on debt relief and on the Ukraine war. So for all the talk about engagement and putting a floor under relations, um, they're not actually moving very far, are they, in terms of positive outcomes? Yeah, I think they, they focus more on not making it worse, but not necessarily making it better. Mm. Everyone's got their own interests at play, right? So it becomes a very difficult discussion. Don't forget, India's doing a lot with Russia, so they're not necessarily going to go all out and let's criticise Ukraine. Um, so, oh, sorry, let's go support Ukraine, obviously, because um, they do. You know, a lot of their business is being done with Russia. So it's it's everyone's got their own agenda in this, and it becomes a very difficult to play to uh, or discussions to have. Let me switch countries and get your thoughts on the US economy because we've had some data overnight there. First of all, retail sales rose 0.2% in June following an upwardly revised 0.5% increase in May. That did miss economists' expectations of a half a percent rise. But core retail sales, which excludes automobiles, gasoline, building materials and food services, that surged 0.6%, more than double um, expectations. And then we also had industrial production, which was much weaker than anticipated in June. That fell half a percent, um, accelerating to the downside from the decline of 0.2% seen uh, in May. And manufacturing, it was the manufacturing output led the decline, falling a third of a percent compared to growth of 0.1% in the prior month. Um, What is the state of the US economy? People are talking about it's sort of in a Goldilocks phase at the moment now, where the Fed is, in effect, they think, succeeding in getting inflation down but without tipping the US economy into recession but what's your assessment of that? I think we haven't seen the full effects of the interest rate rises yet so I think now these numbers that you're starting to see are probably going to be the first realistic numbers in terms of what the effect of the interest rate rises are going to have um, you know at the moment talking about Goldilocks because earnings have been pretty good uh, I think it's about 82% of the companies so far have beat expectations so Everyone's focused on that and going, oh, things are looking wonderful. But let's not forget, earnings is a back quarter. It's not the current quarter. And yes, they've got the outlook and the outlooks have been okay. Um, But I think now is when you're starting to see the the effects of those interest rate rises. So Goldilocks for now, but I would be quite cautious saying let's go into the third, fourth quarter of the year. Uh, And that's right. I think most of the data that you're seeing, which is, is sort of, not reaching expectations uh, are leading indicators like PPI, industrial production, etc. So this is the beginning of uh, sort of the turn uh, that people have been predicted for some time. Mm-hmm. So I think you know it's you have to look at it dispassionately and and see you can see the turn happening. Uh, you don't know the speed 
uh, at which this is going to get reflected at the at the retail level uh, but it's it's coming and the impact is being felt so in terms of fed increases for example you may get the one next week uh, but um, i think that's probably going to be the, the last one because you're going to start seeing data that shows that the economy is slowing down are they going to be cut eventually right i, I think the 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 pace at which uh, the economy slows down uh, you know wage growth slows down uh, unemployment goes up all of that is going to dictate what what the next step is going to be but the first thing to look for is is that um, that 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 point where they say we're not going to raise it we're just going to wait and watch Okay. Well, thank you both very much for coming in this morning. Good to talk to you. That's Sunil Kashap, who is Director of FinMet. Nitin Dialdas, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Good morning, William. Morning, sir. Um, let me ask you about um, the, the Fukushima wastewater issue. Hong Kong's planning to ban imports of seafood and other aquatic products from 10 Japanese regions if, if the nation discharges treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant um, into the ocean. This is causing uh, quite a lot of tension, isn't it, between Japan and China, Japan and Hong Kong. Why is Japan doing this, first of all? Well, I think, you know, certainly the Fukushima crisis, uh, it's, it's amazing that we're still talking about this, you know, a dozen years later, but here we are. But I do think uh, that we're talking about this now because Japan, the authorities here, and also TEPCO, which runs the nuclear power plants up in Fukushima, uh, have been dragging their feet. They've been very, very slow to act and to take steps to stabilize the region. There's still large parts of Fukushima that are uninhabitable, and so Japan is finally taking steps to rectify the situation. The problem is that this controversial step they're taking, uh, arguably in, in the days or weeks ahead, is creating geop- geopolitical uh, tremors around the region. I think that it's a reminder that Japan has a lot more heavy lifting to do in terms of diplomacy in the region. It has a lot more discussion, discussion rather, to do with, with Hong Kong, with China, with South Korea, and Taiwan to explain exactly what it's doing and why Japan believes that these steps are needed and also reasonably safe, all things considered. Mm. The the International Atomic Energy Authority says that uh, the the wastewater is safe. It's not going to cause any damage to fish. The fish won't be uh, contaminated. But uh, the countries around Japan don't seem to be happy with that. No, of course. I mean, you know, any time you have a nuclear leak, uh, and and certainly Japan is still dealing with this a a dozen years later, it's an international event, right? And again, I, I do think that Japan needs to do a better job of making its case to neighbors. Uh, you know, Japan's diplomatic core um, is not really great about sitting down with neighbors and explaining what it's up to and, and what it's doing. And this is one of those moments where Japan's soft power can take a significant hit in the region if Japan doesn't handle this better. I mean, I think that the science, the science of this is that generally that these risks are reasonably contained, all things considered, but the geopolitical risks are the ones that Japan needs to be working on a lot, a lot harder than it is. Mm. And, and China's the top buyer of Japanese seafood. It says uh, it's going to extend a ban on food imports from Fukushima. Uh, Hong Kong is going to ban uh, fish seafood products as well. What sort of impact would that have? Well, certainly it's, it, the, the timing is terrible for the Japanese economy, right? Um, we have uh, the, the Japanese yen for the most part. It's been up in recent days, but generally it's it's 
it's plunged this year. Mm-hmm. So Japan has been hoping for a big boost in exports. And any any kind of ban you see on Japanese products, on not only on fish, but also produce, um, will be a hit to the economy. Not a major, major hit, but at the margin, it's, it's a very badly timed for the Japanese economy and, and for the Japanese government. Mm. And you mentioned the yen. As you say, the yen has been very uh, very weak this year. Apart from it's sort of rebounded the last week or so, and that mainly seems to be on anticipation that the Bank of Japan is going to end its yield curve control policy um, fairly soon. There is a, a, a Bank of Japan meeting next week on Thursday and Friday. But yesterday I noticed that uh, Governor Ueda uh, really tried to uh, knock that on the head, saying there's still some distance to achieve this 2% inflation target. And until that's reached, the monetary policy isn't going to change. So we're sort of left a bit confused, aren't we? Do, what do you think about the yield curve control policy? Is it going to go as the markets expect, or are they going to be disappointed? Well, I could be making a fool out of myself at the moment by saying this, but I think is right about this. I think that the idea that Japan will be acting next week is a bit of a reach. It is possible you'll see some kind of tweak, if you will, just you know, the BOJ reminding markets that it's still here, you know, kind of <laughs> signs of life, if you will, that the BOJ is still around. And I think that you might see some kind of effort to close the gap between Japanese 10-year bonds and U.S. 10-year bonds. But I do not expect any kind of major step in that direction. And I think the reason is because Oweda is pretty new at this job, and I think he's still trying to figure out what's what. And I, I think there's a great concern that if Japan takes a, a significant step with its monetary policy, the stock market will tank. Um, it will become a, a global event. And one of the things that, that the BOJ is looking at is the fact that the Nikkei has been on this bull run this year. And Japan's been in the headlines for some of the right reasons. And the last thing the Bank of Japan ever wants to do, no matter who's running it, is to be blamed for a recession. And so if you're Governor Oweda, I think the odds probably favor the BOJ not stepping away from quantitative easing anytime soon or yield curve control anytime soon. But again, I could feel very stupid a week from now. <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard, isn't it, to guess what central banks are going to do. But also, uh, it is. you have it to is. take into account, I presume, that uh, inflation in Japan is um, double the Bank of Japan's target. It's been above its target, what, for 14 months in a row now. So inflation is going up, isn't it, in Japan? Maybe... Um, Maybe the Bank of Japan sees this as being temporary, but the figures say that, you know, there is a much higher inflation now. I mean, inflation is becoming a genuine problem. I was out with a bunch of friends last night, and that's all anybody was talking about, the price of things like, you know, eggplants and meat and chicken and coffee. Um, prices are going higher. People are feeling it. Uh, hotel stays, for example, for people who want to travel around the, the country are rising. I, I think the other problem, too, is that the labor unions in Japan recently secured the biggest wage increase in about 30 years. And that's a great thing for the Japanese worker. We haven't had big raises in, in decades here, but the timing of this is problematic in that it's another reason to think that inflation might become ingrained. And so if you are the BOJ, you have this, this incredible balancing act. On the one hand, you've had quantitative easing for 23, 24 years, and so you're reluctant to step away from that because it might crash the stock market and send bond yields higher. But the longer that the BOJ remains on autopilot the way it is at the moment, the more inflation could become ingrained. And a lot of inflation, of course, is, is psychology. It's expectations that get built into the system. And if the BOJ doesn't at least tap the brakes a little bit in the weeks and months ahead, these inflationary increases could become permanent. And that, mm. That's a concern. 
And if the Bank of Japan doesn't do anything next week, presumably then the, the, the yen's going to resume its decline and then the stock market can resume its upward trend because that's also stalled yeah. out a little bit, hasn't it, with the reversal in, uh, in the yen? That is true. I mean, you've seen this cause and effect with the Nikkei looking at the yen and, and taking its cues from that. I think the other interesting thing is, you know, I think that I do think the odds favor um, the yen continuing to weaken. Of course, I'm heading to the U.S. next month. So anytime I go to the U.S., the yen is plunging. <laughs> Basically, I've got very bad yen karma. But I think that the interesting uh, factor is how China views this, right? I mean, China's economy is underperforming. Nothing would help China's economy more in 2023 and the Chinese currency becoming more stimulative, uh, more, you know, more accommodative in terms of exports. And so, you know, if the yen falls uh, in the in the weeks and months ahead towards, say, 150 or even 160, does that give China uh, political cover to follow suit? And then you get into all kinds of problems in Washington because there's a presidential election coming up and the Republicans mm-hmm. and even Joe Biden wouldn't like to see the Chinese currency weakening. So it's an interesting time um, given currencies in Asia. It is interesting, isn't it, how Japan's performance is linked to China's in the sense that it's it's actually the mirror image of what China's doing because um, hedge funds in particular have been shifting money out of China um, and then moving that uh, in, into sort of Japan because there are these concerns, obviously, about Chinese growth and also the, the geopolitics. Right. I mean, like uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock has been talking about how investors, they don't want to pull their money out of Asia because of the growth story here. But a lot of investors seem to be moving money out of China into Japan, of all places, because it's considered a, a safer place, a bit of a haven at the moment. And it's considered a, a better undervalued market to ride Asia's economic boom relative to China's. And so in some ways, Japan is benefiting from the, the, the concerns you see about China's economy. And, of course, the regulatory environment in Beijing is still uncertain. You know, we still keep on hearing lots of talk about how the, the tech crackdown is over. We're moving forward. But then there are hints that come out two or three days later, which give you the impression that things are still a bit uncertain. So Japan is benefiting from that. Warren Buffett is arriving even. So um, an interesting time for Japan. We're suddenly in the headlines for, for some of the right reasons. And I think the government likes that. The BOJ doesn't want to be the one to you know, basically change the narrative to Japan, Japan heading into recession, Japan stocks falling. And so I, that's why I think you have the BOJ remaining on autopilot. Again, I could feel very dumb in a week. <laughs> mm. What is interesting is fund managers now starting to call for um, Asian products ex-China, just like back in the 1990s, we started to get Asia ex-Japan and we had indices, the MSCI index of Asia ex-Japan. They're now calling for Asia ex-China, which is a sort of an interesting turn of events, really, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, it's good news for Korean stocks. It's good news for Southeast Asia. Um, but yeah, th- I mean, things are going full circle in that way in certain ways. And, you know, you just have to hope that Xi Jinping in, in, in Beijing is, is reading these headlines and realizing the extent to which this capital, once it leaves China, might not come back for a while. So it's, it's best for China to be taking steps right now, not just to stimulate the economy, but to reform the financial system and remind people that 10 years in that the Xi Jinping era is able to put some big reforms on the scoreboard. We haven't seen as many as investors had expected. Okay, William, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for that. That's William Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Peter Lewis is Money Talk. 
Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you tomorrow. Joining me to discuss them are Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Fru McMillan, who is a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. And we're also going to talk about Asia's frontier markets once again with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.